Hello, I'm Harry Guerrero with Garage House Pictures. Welcome to Trailer Trauma 3 80s Horrorthon. I'm joined here by my Exhumed Films cohorts, Dan Fraga and Jesse Nelson. And we'll be commenting on the films of 1980, which ushered in a decade of slashers, sequels, and special effects. The 1980s also saw the revolution of VHS and cable television, which for the first time allowed horror fans unfettered access to nearly a century's worth of genre cinema. And in just a few seconds here, we're gonna come up to our first trailer, the compilation, which is Lewis Teague's Alligator, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, you are. I'm not mistaken. No, you're not mistaken. <laughs> 1980, Alligator. Here we go. Directed by Lewis Teague. And written by John Sayles, who also wrote The Howling, which Harry screwed up and put in in 1980, even though it's not until 1981. We'll get there later. Yeah, we'll get to that later. Uh, this Alligator was a Brandon Chase production for Group One Films. Group One Films was a, was a, a drive-in exploitation distributor that was uh, famous for uh, their trailers that featured no footage from the movie. You know, they would they would they would film uh, mock uh, audience members, you know, commenting on the film they just saw, but they would never show you the uh, footage from the movies themselves. You know, movies like. Uh, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, Amok, and right. um, some other things, like The Stud with Joan Collins. It's got an amazing cast, this movie. I mean, yeah, it's a neat monster, but when you look at the cast, people like Michael Gazzo, Henry Silva, people forget Gazzo was a playwright before becoming an actor and wrote the play Hatful of Rain, which actually starred Henry Silva on Broadway, featured Henry Silva on Broadway for years before the feature film version. And Louis T, a really underrated director, too. I mean, he, he did so many really cool uh, films in the 70s and, and went on to make a, a few really notable fan-favorite films in the 80s as well, uh, Cat's Eye and uh, Cujo and, uh, you know, also worked as an editor for years with yep. people like Monty Hellman and yeah, he had a Great association with Roger Corman in New World Films. You know, he was an editor. He was a he was an assistant director. He was a guy who edited uh, Cockfighter. Uh, he worked on Death Race 2000 right. and number titles. Well, let's not leave altered states in the lurch here. We've got an amazing film from 1980 from the famous director Ken Russell, perhaps most infamously of the film The Devils, but also the Who's Tommy, and then later in the 80s, Lair the White Worm. Yes, this was the film debut of William Hurt and Drew Barrymore as well. And Ken Russell claims that he was the 27th choice to direct this film, so 26 <laughs> other people passed on it before Warner came to him. This is a movie that definitely kind of reinvigorated or raised awareness and interest in sensory deprivation, you know, the focus of the movie is this character who goes through sensory deprivation chambers and is able to restore or bring about this primitive mindset and this primitive state of being. And actually in the 70s and 80s, after this movie, sensory deprivation chambers became sort of a fad for a while. It's also got cinematography by Jordan Cronenworth, who is well known for his work in the film Blade Runner from later in the decade. Interesting, the uh, the original critic screenings or premiere screenings of this film were, were shown in something called Mega Sound, which was Warner Brothers' answer to Universal's Sensoround. Evidently, films such as Outland, Superman 2, and Wolfen were also 
uh, debuted in this format, though I can't say I've never talked to anybody who actually ever seen them in that format. But uh, there you have it. Unfortunately, Mega Force was not in Mega Sound. <laughs> All right, we're going on to The Awakening. This is the feature film debut of director Mike Newell, who is perhaps the quintessential British filmmaker. He'd done a lot of TV in England prior to directing The Awakening, and then afterwards went on to some of the most famous and well-regarded films of the 80s and 90s, things like Enchanted April, Four Weddings and a Funeral, he even directed one of the Harry Potter sequels. He is definitely the quintessential consummate British filmmaker. I think this is the one film on 1980 that none of us uh, here today have seen. We're not proud of that, but it's true. I don't think any of us have. You know, I've always wanted to see it. I think it has a great poster, has some nice ads uh, and trailers. You know, this is Charlton Heston's first horror movie. Uh, shot by Jack Cardiff, uh, who, you know, did a whole host of great things, uh, you know, uh, cinematographer, you know, he, was, he directed a number of films, uh, Dark of the Sun, The Mutations, which I really enjoy. He actually was cinematographer for um, Ghost Story, which appears later on the compilation. Yes, indeed. And I think uh, he was Rambo's cinematographer. I think he was First Blood Part Two's cinematographer, if I'm not mistaken. Also, also Oscar winner for Black Narcissus. And this is based on a famous Bram Stoker story, Jewel of the Seven Stars, or novella, I should say. And it was filmed, if I'm not mistaken, about five different times, perhaps most famously as the Hammer film Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, and also was the source for a, a 90s or early 2000s mummy movie by Russell Mulcahy. Tale of the Mummy, yeah. With Jason uh, Scott Lee, I think. And producer Robert H. Solo uh, uh, was also the producer of... Ken Russell's The Devils, as well as Philip Kaufman's 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Blood Beach is a great title. I don't know if it's a great movie, but it's a great title. It's a great trailer, too. You know, I don't know. You know, the film appeals to me more and more as I get older and go back and see it. I find things to like about it. But I know this was a very disappointing watch me back in, you know, the early video days for me. Oh, 100%. It doesn't seem to know what it wants to do, and then the monster is, eh. When I was a kid, I remember I hadn't seen the film, but a friend saw it and said that the monster was a giant jellyfish living under the sand. And I don't know if that's exactly what it could it's be. supposed to be or not, it but could be. it's tentacled like a jellyfish, I suppose. Sure. You know, we've got a number of, of course, um, famous actors in the film. We've got Burt Young, who is seen just a few years earlier in Rocky, and then, of course, all the Rocky sequels, among other films. And then genre legend John Saxon making at least his second 1980 horror appearance. He also appears in the Italian horror film Cannibal Apocalypse in 1980. Which we don't have a trailer for. We don't have a trailer for. And later in the year, we'll also kind of bemoan the various wonderful 80s horror films from Italy, which we do not have trailers for on this compilation. The director, Jeffrey Bloom, went on to direct the 1987 film version of Flowers in the Attic, which, if I recall, was not the greatest production of all time. It was not a terribly exciting film version. And Flowers in the Attic was, again, remade just fairly recently for television. Sure, yeah, Jeffrey, uh, the director of Jeffrey Bloom also uh, cut his teeth on some, uh, some interesting crime films in the, in the 70s, uh, notably Snow Job and Eleven Harrow House. Uh, you know, the one thing for this movie, uh, for me, that, that, that's interesting, uh, I, I love the fact that uh, Harriet Medine appears in the film as Marianna Hill's mother. Uh, Harriet Medine was the stuffy housekeeper 
um, made in so many Italian Gothic horror movies of the 60s, uh, including uh, Doctor uh, Horrible Dr. Hitchcock, uh, The Ghost, uh, Blood of Black Lace, uh, The Whip in the Body, Black Sabbath. Uh, from here, she went on to appear in uh, James Cameron's uh, the Terminator, and she was the old lady that appeared in uh, lots of uh, television shows like Who's the Boss and uh, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, wow. Yes. Again, John Saxon, in addition to this movie, Accountable Apocalypse, is perhaps best remembered for his role as the father of the main character Nancy in A Nightmare on Elm Street, but also goes back to movies like Queen of Blood from the 1960s. Enter and... the Dragon. Of course, and a dragon, and a wolf, right? I mean, a wealth of other genre films, both horror and exploitation related. Yeah, this trailer kind of plays for me. It's almost like a little uh, a Burt Young short film, you know, because it, it, it elaborates a little bit more on his character. You don't see him a whole lot in the movie, but, uh, you know, he narrates the whole thing, so it it feels like a little addendum to, uh, to the character he plays in the film. And Jerry Gross, just coming off of, you know, a big hit with Zombie, you know, Scores with a really great ad campaign for, for, for Blood Beach, you know, uh, uh, capitalizing on the Jaws campaign. And here's the Boogeyman, you know, another Jerry Gross release. Yeah, if we're talking about Jerry Gross, uh, definitely this is one of his most interesting films from the 80s. I don't think it's necessarily the most effective movie at all times, but it's got a great pedigree from director Uwe Lamel. I know we were talking earlier about Lamel's work in the 70s or in previous Yeah, acts. he worked with uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder for a time and uh, even Andy Warhol before making The Boogeyman and then going on to directing a slew of slasher uh, true crime thrillers uh, based on, uh, you know, famous you know murders and stuff like that, like uh, the BTK killer and uh, uh, the Zodiac killer. And recently was involved with Boogeyman Reincarnation in 2015, which I didn't even know existed until I looked up some facts about this movie. Uh, he did a Boogeyman sequel as well. It was filmed in 81, didn't come out in the U.S. until a couple years after that. But Boogeyman was actually a pretty sizable hit for producer Jerry Gross in 1980, so it makes sense that they would go on and try to capitalize on that. Boogeyman also has one of the most ridiculous death scenes of all time, which is the dumb little brother of the woman we just saw there holding the scissors to her throat where he just keeps randomly popping up the film and shouting boogeyman at people until finally he's done in by a, a haunted window which I believe collapses on his neck and presumably snaps his neck. Yeah, this really is a terrific trailer. I mean, uh, the Jerry Gross organization really know how to advertise movies. I mean, they really know how to cut together a trailer and make it look exciting. I mean, this particular film, I mean, they probably pack every great moment, you know, the film has into into, into two minutes. Uh, it really makes you want to go see the movie. I mean, I don't know if the movie really plays as well as the trailer does, but, uh, you know, it got people into the theater. Other big Jerry Gross productions from the era, Teenage Mother, Black Godfather, and allegedly had something to do with the Harry Nilsson film, Son of Dracula, although I believe that's unconfirmed. Cinemation, yeah. Cinemation, was, Cinemation Industries was uh, run by Jerry Gross. That was before Jerry Gross, so... Uh, Alright, this is a much different and a much better film. Here we see The Changeling. The Changeling is one of my personal favorites from 1980 and the 80s in general. As a kid watching this movie, 
on cable television, I was absolutely terrified. And I stand by the fact that I think it's really one of the most effective, one of the most frightening movies of the 1980s. And the wheelchair is so frightening, and this scene that's and that's right, right there with the ball, the ball bouncing <laughs> down the steps. Something so simple. It's so frightening, and and you see something like that pop up in so many ghost stories, but I can't think of any movie prior to this where where that gag appeared. Yeah, really, I don't think uh, this is not only one of the scariest films of the 80s, but I think it's one of the scariest films of all time. I would put it up there with you know movies like The Haunting. Yeah, absolutely, um, with The Innocence and The Haunting as yeah. far as ghost stories. This movie doesn't go for any cheap scares. It goes, you know, under your skits under your skin and just unnerves the hell out of you. Uh, maybe it begins to fall apart towards the, the last act when it when it begins to deconstruct uh, you know everything that's really happening in the story, but... Uh, uh, it really is a, a hair raiser, you know, thrill ride all the way through, I think. And ironically, Peter Medic, the director of the film, went from this one to his very next feature, which was Zorro the Gay Blade, the infamous George Hamilton Zorro spoof featuring George Hamilton as a dual role as both Zorro and his gay brother, if I'm yeah, but remember my HBO correctly. <laughs> that that it was and, a staple of HBO. Yeah, and and Love at First Bite. How many times I watched those two movies on <laughs> HBO? I can't even imagine what that did to my psyche. George Hamilton one-two punch, but yeah. We also took note of the fact that Lamberto Bava, the Italian director and son of Mario Bava, made a TV movie in Italy called Until Death which was later re-released or marketed overseas as The Changeling 2, trying to capitalize on this film's reputation. Supposedly, The Changeling was based on true events, uh, according to the screenwriter, but uh, we'll leave that up to you know your own decision. And onto something definitely not based on true events. <laughs> but more ghostly happenings. Right. This is Death Ship. It's a Canadian film from the producing team of Sandy Howard and Harold Greenberg. And later in the compilation, and actually in this year, we'll see another uh, vehicular horror film from this team, the movie Terror Train. Based story by Jack Hill, you know, of Switchblade Sisters fame, uh, Foxy Brown, Coffee. Uh, I'd love to know the story behind that. I mean, was this an existing script of Jack Hill's, a story uh, that, that some, was this something he was going to direct at the time? I mean, I know that, that right around the time this film was made, uh, Jack Hill was... Uh, finding religion again, and uh, you know, he got out of directing shortly after this for a long period too. So I wonder if that had something to do with it. Uh, but I'm curious exactly what the origins of this story of that film was. And a quick shout out to Richard Creta, who's in one of my favorite TV movies of all time, Devil Dog, Hound of Hell. I think one of the best horror TV films of the late 70s. All right, if it's 1980, we have to talk about slasher films, and in particular, in the wake of Halloween and later the success of Friday the 13th, there's a wealth or a plethora of horror films that focus on the mass killer, otherwise the misogynistic killer, who's taking vengeance against women in general. And Don't Answer the Phone is perhaps one of the most infamous of that lot. We talked about the fact that the film features a great lead performance by a wonderful character actor named Nicholas Wirth, who plays the killer in this film, but is perhaps best remembered by genre fans as one of the henchmen of Louis Jordan in Swamp Thing, who actually, I believe, gets turned into a midget or goblin character at one point due to That's the, right. the chemicals that turned Alec Holland into Swamp Thing. And I'm also, always very disturbed by that scene <laughs> in that movie. 
Yeah. Also appears in Darkman as one of uh, Larry Drake's henchmen. Yep, indeed. Uh, yeah, we'll learn a little bit more about Nicholas' work later on in Stephen Romano's commentary. Uh, he turns in a really terrific performance in this film too. I mean, he's just really—he's uh, really out of control and over the top. And uh, uh, you know, as you'll find out a little bit later with Stephen, uh, you know, very religious. Uh, uh, so he kind of, uh, you know. Didn't quite, you know, he, he didn't live the roles that he played on screen for sure. You know, he's a completely different kind of guy. Oh, you shouldn't answer the phone. Don't answer the phone and don't go in the house either. We're continuing the trend of 80s slasher films that focus on sort of sexually unhinged murderers who go after female characters. And Don't Go in the House is perhaps one of the most brutal and one of the most effective films in that subgenre of uh, slasher movie. Yeah, I like this film a lot. I think it uh, it's really effective. Uh, I think uh, Dan Grimaldi's performance, you know, even though it is his first film, uh, you know, uh, endears you to his character somewhat. I mean, you, it, it, much like an Anthony Perkins, I mean, you, you become, you know, a little bit more uh, interested in the story based on his performance, I think. Um, you know, Dan is, of course, better known as uh, Patsy Parisi and his twin brother, Philly Parisi, right, right. Play the dual role in, in the Sopranos. Sopranos. And uh, we did a screening with uh, Dan at one point, and he is still very proud of his role in this film. And, uh, yeah, I think the movie holds up really well. I mean, I think it's one of the better uh, films of its type from, from the period. I mean, I really do think it has a lot going for it. I remember we did an Exhumed Film screening of this, and the audience was just dead silent. Usually during most yeah. of our screenings, there's laughing and whooping and clapping, and this movie is just so grim and so it's very grim, yeah. upsetting that there was just silence except for the occasional moan or groan of mm -hmm. discomfort from audience <laughs> members. But that's the movie it is. It's definitely not something for the faint of heart or not something that you're going to go back and enjoy it as a pleasure watch. It's sort of a one and done, in my opinion. Yeah, the, uh, on IMDb, the suggestions of films you might also like include Pieces, House on the Edge of the Park, and Nightmare. Uh, agreed. Several of which, you know, we'll be seeing on the compilation. Yeah, has, the film has quite a lot in common with uh, William Lustig's Maniac, which we'll be getting to soon. Well, here's perhaps one of the classier films in terms of 1980 horror. This is Brian De Palma's dress. Classier now in retrospect, but, in retrospect, but upon its, its release, it was uh, sure. you know, quite vilified by the critics. This is another, for me, HBO fond remembrance. As a kid, I was too young to appreciate the twists and turns of the plot, but I was exactly the right age to appreciate Angie Dickinson taking a shower, which is really love my Angie Dickinson. I always, always had a thing for Angie Dickinson, and you know, she's old in this one, but she's still looking great, even though. She does have the body double in this one. It is a body <laughs> double. There's a great Hitchcock quote where someone told Hitchcock, and of course it was at the end of his life, that Brian De Palma's new movie was an homage to Hitchcock films, and Hitchcock's response allegedly was, I think you mean fromage. <laughs> Fade to black. This is another HBO favorite, and when I say favorite, I truly mean this was one of my personal favorite films as a kid, and I think, for me... One of the reasons this movie is so effective is we can really identify with Dennis Christopher's character of Eric Benford. He's a movie nerd who resorts to cinematic taunts when he's being bullied or disregarded by his peers. And I remember as a kid, you know, feeling the same thing and wishing that I could get vengeance on the people who had bullied me or made fun of me for being a movie nerd. And 
Benford is the epitome of that as he dresses up as various villains and monsters from cinema's history in order to exact vengeance on those who have done him wrong. There's another another level of the film too, where uh, Dennis Christopher's character here is so desensitized by violence that uh, you know he he, he sees into the role of the killer, you know, with 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 relative ease. Uh, the, the film was produced by uh, producer uh, Erlen Yablon, who was, of course, uh, you know, best known for Halloween a couple and of years earlier. We'll see a reference to that momentarily if I remember the trailer correctly, with the Halloween poster in the backdrop. It's also directed by Vernon Zimmerman, directed and written by Vernon Zimmerman. Doesn't have a lot in his repertoire, but... Unholy Rollers. Okay. Claudia Jennings. He did direct, too, uh, a movie in 73 called Deadhead Miles, which was a comedy starring Alan Arkin and co-written, or actually written, by Terrence Malick. Which Under a pseudonym, yeah. I, I will admit is not one that I have seen before. And fans of very shitty movies would be... Um, pleased to note that he wrote Teen Witch, which no one else in the room here knew. I have no idea what Teen Witch is. Yeah, top that, Dan. <laughs> I don't think I can. Well, it, go ahead. Dennis Christopher, Christopher is just really terrific in the film, too. I mean, I think he really uh, uh, you know, elicits your sympathy. I mean, he really carries the film. Uh, you know, always terrific in all the films I think he's ever been in. I uh, really was a huge fan of Breaking Away. and. Right. Uh, this is his first film after that. Yes, it was. Uh, it seems to be an odd choice. Also an early role for Mickey Rourke in this one, I believe, as well. I think you just right. saw him there the and, and a little bit earlier. Yep, there's the Halloween poster. Lots of film cans there. Nice little mummy makeup there as well. Yeah, I think the vampire makeup, the mummy makeup, and definitely his James Cagney impersonation really rung home with me as a kid. And without spoiling the film entirely, there's the climactic sequence that you see right there in the trailer where he gets out the famous Cagney line, Top of the World Ma, as heard in the James Cagney favorite, White Heat. Fade the backs of the film I would love to show at an Exhumed film screening, if we could. Yeah, I'd love to show it as well. It's something that uh, you don't see a whole lot of prints of out there. Uh, and I think it's even kind of hard to find on Blu-ray. I don't it's think it's, it's not, not available on Blu-ray, Blu right? No, nowhere that I know of. Yeah, I think I've had some requests over the years uh, for people looking uh, looking for materials on the film. So Here's a very the short status is of it. Very short trailer. I leave this one to you, Harry, because we don't have much time to talk about. Very. I, I love teaser trailers like this. I love teaser trailers that show no footage from the movie whatsoever. It has nothing to give away. It just has uh, some nice narration here to draw you in. Uh, you know, it doesn't. You know, there's no spoilers. I mean, this is this is a really terrific teaser trailer, uh, and I've always wondered if uh, the footage scene in this trailer of the hand that's about to jump out of the water and grab you uh, was shot by uh, Carpenter himself, perhaps when they went back and did reshoots for the movie. I mean, uh, when when they completed the fog. Uh, it was deemed a little bit too tame, so they had gone back and they had shot more footage with uh, more violent footage, you know, with the maggots and stuff on the faces of the uh, the, the the ghosts uh, and the the climatic uh, uh, chase, uh, you know, uh, with uh, the, the you know, at the end with Adrian Barbeau on the lighthouse. I always wondered if Con uh, Carpenter had gone back and you know shot that footage or not. I mean, I'm curious what the origin of it was. All right, well, here we go. This is quite simply one of the most influential horror films of all time. And this is, of course, the original Friday the 13th. And although the film was obviously ripping off the success of Halloween, I would argue that Friday the 13th has had a greater impact on the genre overall than even Carpenter's classic. Is there a more iconic image out there than the hockey mask 
killer. It's been aped and, you know, copied and referenced so many times. And true, the image doesn't appear in this film itself. In fact, Jason's barely in the movie at all. But the success of this original entry laid out the template for pretty much every slasher film that would follow. And it set the stage for, I would say, the most famous horror villain in all fall time. Yeah, it's true. And, and noted the hockey mask doesn't actually appear until the third film. Right. But I don't know anyone that associates Jason with a bag over his head or even thinks of the mother at all when you talk about Friday the 13th. It's always Jason. And let's not forget Tom Savini here, who, you know, is so influential in the 80s. Yeah, Tom Savini was really one of the biggest stars to come out of the 80s. I mean, uh, he, he was, you know, what made a lot of these films special. I mean, it's what a lot of fans went fans went to go see these movies for his effects. And uh, interesting thing about this film, too, is that the, uh, the the 10 or 11 seconds that of gore footage that was cut out of the original U.S. theatrical release of the film is quite strong, you know, or, or those that, that footage is is, is quite, quite effective. I mean, in nine seconds, you, do, you don't think nine seconds would add a whole lot to a movie but uh, you know for this scene in particular with right, Kevin Bacon Kevin getting Bacon killed uh, the, those extra you know the, the blood effects I mean uh, really really uh, uh, drives the point home I mean it really is effective uh, I was quite shocked when I first seen that footage for, you know I didn't think I'd notice this footage this extra little you know little bits of uh, gore when I when I'd seen the uncut version but it did stand out and it, it really uh, did the trick. My favorite Friday the 13th story personally is as a kid, my mother went to go see the movie All That Jazz in the movie theater and got to the theater to find that All That Jazz had just left, but instead there was this movie called Friday the 13th playing. And she went to see that instead and came home horrified and traumatized and said that it was the most horrific thing she had seen since Psycho. And in retrospect, when you look back on the film, there's actually quite a few similarities between Psycho and Friday the 13th in terms of the killer who was haunted by the memory of this dead family member. Yeah, a quick aside on a uh, writer of uh, Victor Miller or Victor B. Miller. Uh, Victor Miller was uh, was an author who wrote a number of uh, paperback originals, and also uh, he was uh, he wrote a lot of Kojak paperback tie-ins, which I have a stack of sitting next to us here. The paperback tie-in is something which is sadly you know, uh, gone out of favor in, in later years of cinema. But although I just bought the Suicide Squad. Paperback tie-in, well, which good. was written based on the original screenplay, which was a different product than the finished film. Good for you. Okay, we have the Grim Reaper here uh, from Film Venture Ventures International. A great trailer. Uh, film Ventures was another company like uh, Jerry Gross that really had a great uh, ad campaign, you know, or, or advertising staff that created these trailers and cut them together and added some really terrific narration and stuff to them. Uh, really made you wanted to see the films. I mean, the Grim Reaper, fairly forgettable. Joe D'Amato production, though it does have a couple of really nicely done suspenseful moments, uh, but seeing the U.S. version of the film without the fetus and uh, intestine-eating scenes uh, intact, uh, you know, there's not a whole real lot to uh, to get into with this one. Grim Reaper is, of course, the American release title for Joe D'Amato's Anthropophagus. Yes. Joe D'Amato is the pseudonym for the Italian filmmaker Aristide Massacchesi, and this was written in conjunction with his friend and colleague and partner George Eastman, a.k.a. Luigi Montefiore, who had teamed up on a number of films, and perhaps most infamously, Porno Holocaust, which is basically a remake of Anthropophagus, just with hardcore sex scenes, including a zombie monster who chokes a woman to death with his penis. And of note, Joe D'Amato spent the last years of his life making nothing but hardcore pornography. It's a great success. Oh, yes. In, in his credit. So, Robin Hood. 
Thief of Wives. Excellent film. It should be noted too, 1980 was uh, a defining year for Italian horror cinema too. I mean, pro probably the greatest, yeah, or you know, greatest year of Italian horror. Uh, you know, you had films. Well, Zombie had just come out in the U.S. in 1980 by Jerry Gross. Uh, but we also had kind of a Holocaust, City of the Walking Dead, House on the Edge of the Park, Night of the Zombies, Macabre. Uh, that was Lamberto, Lamberto Baba's first feature, uh, and Zombie Holocaust. Uh, no trailers for any of those on the commentary, but uh, we're mentioning them just to let you know about them. Well, let's not leave He Knows You're Alone without a little bit of commentary. He Knows You're Alone is yet another entry in the burgeoning slasher genre that epitomized the 80s. This one's probably best remembered for being the film debut of a young actor named Tom Hanks. And of course, we all remember Tom Hanks best as the character Uncle Ned from Family Ties. Yes. Yeah, he drank that vanilla. From the producers of Blue Sunshine and Squirm. And the director of The Supernaturals and Cameron's Closet, two other later 80s favorites. Actually, a pretty solid Halloween imitation, I think. Uh, you know, right down to the recurring uh, threadbare piano theme. And then we go on to our second Trish Vandeveer ghost story film from 1980, the other being, of course, The Changeling. This is The Hearse. Released by Crown International Pictures. There you go. It was a PG-rated film, and for me personally, the, the Hearse always had the vibe of sort of a TV movie, which stands to reason when you figure that the director, excuse me, not the director, the writer, Bill Blythe, did a number of TV horror-themed films, including... Deadly Messages, which was a Ouija board-based psychological thriller. And he also directed the Halloween horror comedy favorite, The Midnight Hour, with LeVar Burton. Or, excuse me, wrote The Midnight Hour, not directed. Don't want to misspeak. Uh, this film also stars a young Dennis Quaid early on in the movie. You might miss him if you're not looking for him. And the director is also known for directing My Tudor and edited... The fan favorite Buckaroo Banzai. That's right, he did do Buckaroo Banzai. I forgot all about that. And I always confuse this movie in my mind with the car. Obviously, similar theme. Um, you know, both owe a debt to Both a feature a car on the poster, but in reality, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the hearse couldn't be anything like the car. Well, it's true, but. I, I, I recently caught up with the hearse in preparation for uh, this commentary and seen it for the first time, and I, I actually like the film. Uh, you know, it's not it's fairly uneven and somewhat slow, but uh, it's fairly effective in what it tries to do. And Trish Vanderveer puts in a really good performance. Uh, it's always great to see Joseph Cotton in a movie too. Yeah, every time I see Joseph Cotton in a movie, I forget who he is, and then I realize, oh, that's Joseph Cotton. <laughs> This has got to be one of his final films, too, I would think. Joseph right, his career didn't span much past 1980, I can imagine. What year was Baron Blood? That's 72. So, 72. So, yeah, and then this goes well, well in 1980, so... Trish Vandeveer, obviously, the, uh, the well... Wife. Maybe not obviously, but, uh, uh, yeah, the wife of George C. Scott. You know, they both appear together in quite a few films. You know, I'm pretty sure I have the movie novelization of The Hearse, too, floating around. You know, I do. Ha I have it as well, and I've never read it. <laughs> I know I have the movie novelization of the next film. Well, it wasn't the novelization. No, it was novelization. The oh, that's right, yes. An actual novel by Gary, Gary Brandner. Sure, and I, uh, that. I have to apologize here, folks, because uh, The Howling is not a 1980 release. It's actually, it actually was released in 1981. 
uh, when I assembled this compilation here, I actually was going uh, from memory for a large part, uh, and I just I, we didn't realize until we got settled down here for this commentary that we actually had misplaced this trailer. Uh, but so be it. The Howling is, of course, one of two major werewolf movies which came out in 1981, this and the other being An American Werewolf in London. And we had a friendly debate about it here in Harry's living room before the recording of this, but I would stand by The Howling personally as the preferred werewolf movie. I, I think this movie is better than An American Werewolf in London overall, even with this spoiler of a trailer which ruins the end of the movie for unsuspecting audiences. Yeah, I can't go so far. I think the, the, the films are both pretty terrific in their own right. I love them and, both. And they, they, they both have, you know, you know they, their own uh, things to recommend them. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame we don't get more films like The Howling because this movie just really pops and really works on every level. I don't think that the werewolf makeup or special effects have ever been topped from this movie. Plus, you've got the cast of Slim Pickens and John Carradine and Dick Miller. It's such a phenomenal genre. And let's not forget, it's the second John Sayles written, written. film. Right. And huge shout-out to Joe Dante, who I love so much. All right, this is Human Experiments. And despite the sci-fi-sounding title and the video box, which featured a creature with glowing eyes on the cover, Human Experiments is actually not a horror film or a sci-fi film. It does have quite a few horror elements in it. It does, but at its heart, it's a women in prison exploitation film. Sure. Actually, a 1979 uh, release... Or, or produced Production. in 1979, but not released until 1980. I enjoy the movie, so we got it here on the compilation. And by the way, that's Percy Rodriguez uh, narrating this trailer. Percy Rodriguez, you're going to learn a lot more uh, of later on here in the comp uh, compilation here. Uh, Percy probably narrated more trailers on this compilation than anyone. Uh, you know, best known for Jaws and, uh, you know, things like that. Um, Producers of Human Experiments are a husband and wife couple, Edwin Brown and Summer Brown, and they actually produced and directed a number of triple X rated adult films in the 70s and 80s, including some pretty popular titles, things like 1001 Erotic Nights and Every Woman Has a Fantasy. And clearly, Human Experiments is not a hardcore film, but it does have ample nudity, as one might expect from a women in prison type film. And we do see the Essex video tag at the end of the trailer. Right, which I, we were debating earlier. I don't know if Essex ever released anything non-pornography other than Human Experiments. I could be wrong on that, and I'm sure Chris Pajali would correct me. But uh, If you were here. If you were here, I don't recall many others. <clears throat> the movie features a couple name actors in addition to the leads we've got in small roles. Jackie Coogan, former child star, but best known as Uncle Fester from the Addams Family TV show. And also Ellen Travolta, who is John Travolta's sister and played Scott Bayo's mother in both Happy Days and the spinoff Joni Loves Chachi. That's Linda Haynes right there in the lead role, uh, best known for uh, Rolling Thunder. Right. And Jeffrey Lewis, who you'll probably recognize from Salem's Lot, had a big year in 1980, starred also in Any Which Way You Can, Heaven's Gate, Bronco Billy, which... Is a Clint Eastwood movie. I love it. No one ever seems to talk about. Yeah, I, I always enjoyed it as, as, as well as a kid. And uh, Tom Horn. Yeah, uh, Jeffrey Lewis is one of those actors who just seem to be ever present. He just seemed to be in every single thing you turned on. You know, you know, back in the day here. Uh, you know, 
fun actor, you know, always appreciated, you know, uh, whenever he pops up in a film. Okay, we're on to Humanoids from the Deep, which was originally titled Beneath the Darkness and directed by Barbara Peters, who is one of the only female filmmakers that we're going to see on the... Represented in the compilation, yeah, that's correct. And I think the only one here in 1980. You know, the film was also known as Monster, I believe, in its Australian release. Okay. You know, it has some really great posters you know, featuring the monster. Uh, this is, of course, a film out of the Roger Corman factory. And previously, Barbara Peters had directed other Corman's exploitation films like Summer School Teachers. But Peters had a sort of falling out with Corman in that Corman himself felt the film was not quite exploitative enough, so he allegedly had the second unit director film some additional scenes of the monsters raping women and had them inserted, no pun, into the movie without the director's knowledge and allegedly when she saw the finished product and saw what had been done to her feature she was really angered and demanded that her name be removed from the final product although I think Corman denied that request. Yeah, it's a terrific monster movie, uh, something of a throwback to you know 50s uh, horror and science fiction films like uh, you know uh, uh, the, the, the Attack of the, the with the giant leeches and you know film films films of that nature, but you know I think it you know it has a great monster by Rob, Rob Bottin and you know I think it needed that extra little you know those little extra bits of violence and stuff like that too you know for the modern audience because otherwise you know it's a little bit too it's a little too tame a little bit too staid. Uh, I, I I really enjoy the film a lot. All right, this is quite possibly my favorite trailer on the entire compilation, whether it be 1980 or any other year. This is Dario Argento's Inferno and. What a fantastic movie and what a fantastic score from prog rock icon Keith Emerson. You know, obviously the score for Suspiria has become so, you know, iconic and so famous from the Italian Ben Goblin, but I, I would say that Emerson at least matches, if not, you know, supersedes the score from Suspiria with his soundtrack for Inferno. And if you haven't watched these trailers yet, if you're just listening to us in our commentary, turn off the commentary and watch this trailer with the Emerson score. It's such a fantastic and such an incredible title track. Yeah, this trailer to me is it's almost like the Castle Films condensation of Inferno here. I mean, it just has all the really great moments in the film. And, you know, I, it may be blasphemous to, to some people, but I, I think I might even prefer Inferno to Suspiria. I mean, it's, as familiar as I am with Suspiria, I think... You know, uh, it's a little bit, you know, I get a little tired of it going back to, you know, and revisiting it. But Inferno is a film that I haven't gotten tired of yet. I mean, the, uh, the, the images, the textures of the movie, I mean, there's something about this film. I mean, it just, uh, you know, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But, I mean, there's something about it that, that uh, uh, really, I think, is really terrific. In some ways, I think it tops, uh, you know, in, in, in Suspiria. And, you know, I, I, I might even say I like Immersion Score over this one even better than Suspiria. As much as I love, you know, the Suspiria score. Uh, this score is just, it's just fucking incredible. I paid $35 for a CD of this back in the day before it was so readily available. I think it's, the one I have is a Japanese issue even. Hmm. The movie features in the lead role uh, Daria Nicolodi, who of course was Argento's wife for a time in the 70s and 80s. And in the male lead, as we see right there, this is the actor Lee McCloskey, who had a career later as being a favorite for 80s teen sex movie villains. Now, Lee McCloskey actually, even though he would have been 30 years old or older at the time, he appears as the nemesis in movies like 
Just One of the Guys, Fraternity Vacation with Stephen Jeffries and Tim Robbins, and Hamburger the Movie. I believe he's not the villain of that. I believe he's the hero, if I recall Hamburger the Movie correctly. Yeah, really, just just a terrific trailer. I mean, it, 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 maybe a little bit overlong. It shows you a little bit too much. Exactly the opposite of the fog trailer we were just discussing. But uh, uh, but heck, it's a, it's a great it's a great uh, primer. You know, it's a great cliff notes for the film. I think. Yeah. We were also talking earlier about how the studio really dropped the ball in terms of release. Yeah, it's a shame that uh, 20th Century Fox never uh, you know never really properly distributed this film. You know, there was that you know that really brief key video uh, you know videotape release in the US but you know why, why wasn't this film distributed theatrically I mean I'm not quite sure of the uh, the history there but uh, certainly uh, you know an omission I think on uh, Fox's part especially it's after you know you know Suspiria was Suspiria. such a big such a big impactful film Well, here's a trailer that Harry had the pleasure of uh, watching very recently. Yeah, I just screened this film uh, last Tuesday, actually. Yeah, yeah, last week. Zoom Films just came across the 35mm print of it, and this is The Island, starring Michael Caine, based, of course, on the novel by Peter Benchley, who was really riding high in the late 70s and early 80s off the success of his novels Jaws and The Deep and this one as well. Of course, yeah, the Jaws sequels. I mean, it kept the ball rolling too. But uh, the island is, uh, hey, the island is a, just a really <laughs> strange movie. I mean, uh, it was uh, really uh, maybe somewhat misguided. I mean, I, I don't know how a movie like this got made uh, by Universal. It's such a strange film. Uh, it's a film that surely would never get made by a major studio today. Um, probably plays better as a book, or reads better as a book than it plays as a movie. Um, the pirates here in this film, you know, are something of a cross between Errol Flynn, Monty Python, and, and uh, Jason Voorhees. Uh, you're never quite sure whether to root for them or against them. And uh, the same is true with uh, Michael Caine's character, who is introduced uh, in the early moments of the film, uh, you know, as a kind of a deadbeat dad who, uh, you know, buys his son, uh, you know, he takes his son to a gun store and, and, and buys him a gun, you know, which he proceeds to play with on the ride back home. Uh, so, yeah, strange little film here, but, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of films like The Island, that's for sure. It, it kind of was, I would almost say, the death knell for Benchley's career, too, cinematically. There's not a whole lot that you can point to after The Island, you know, that would be based on Benchley's work, other than... Yeah, a lot of television miniseries. Right. Oh, you had Creature yeah. and The Beast, the Beast and you know, some other yeah. things. But, yeah, cinematically, this was kind of the end for him. And in addition to Michael Caine, we of course see David Warner there as one of the prime pirates. Yeah, and speaking of Jaws, uh, that was Percy Rodriguez again there as the narrator, you know. All right, well, if it's 80s slasher, it would be incomplete without one of the most infamous films of the decade and the year. And there goes Tom Savini's head. It's Maniac. Directed by Bill Lustig. Yeah, the notorious film by Bill Lustig. Uh, you know, and Bill Lustig is, uh, you know, really deserves a lot of praise, uh, you know, for his role in the horror genre, not only as a filmmaker, but, uh, at, you know, through his association with Anchor Bay and Blue Underground for getting a lot of these films in front of uh, the public eye again. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, there's so many of these titles that we'll be reviewing, in this, I think, in this compilation, uh, you know, uh, we're probably first introduced to you know a lot of audiences courtesy of his uh, his his video releases, his DVD and Blu-ray releases. So, uh, thanks, Bill. Know. 
Let's uh, clear up one of the urban legends about the movie, too. There was an urban legend that Michael Cimbello's Oscar-nominated song Maniac, which was used in the movie Flashdance, was originally written for Lustig's film. That is not true. However, it was inspired by the film. Michael Cimbello said that his songwriting partner had seen the movie Maniac and was inspired to write a song about it and, in fact, shared it with Cimbello, who changed the lyrics from being about a psychopath to being about a blue-collar girl who loves to dance, and the rest is history. There's also a really fascinating story about Gene Siskel's opposition to the film. Siskel really hated Maniac and was particularly upset by an advertising ploy which had kiosks outside of the New York theaters where they would show video clips of Maniac and the big gore scenes. And he felt that this was really horrifying and did an entire episode of sneak previews lambasting the film and was instrumental in having its release in Chicago, not curtailed, but definitely the advertising was not included. And on to Motel Hell. Which is such a great movie. Just watched it very recently. Just showed it at our 24-hour marathon a couple weeks back. Yeah, certainly a favorite of mine. Uh, uh, the director, Kevin Connor, uh, cut his teeth on uh, a number of uh, projects for uh, Amicus films in the, in the 70s. Uh, including uh, From Beyond the Grave. And John you know. Land, The Time for God, People the Time and for people God. Oh, I love those movies. Yeah, Amicus, of course, was uh, you know uh, known for their Tales in the Crypt and Vault of Horror productions, you know, their EC uh, Comics uh, productions. And this film here, in particular, has a, a distinct EC Comics feel, I think, in the tone, the, the, the humor, the horror. It's a movie, too, that bears a lot of similarities to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies in terms of sort of the, you know, cannibalism aspect. Sure, absolutely. The yeah. comic overtones. There was the story that Toby Hooper at one point was attached to direct the film. Yeah, I think it was... a universal was, production. It might have been for another studio, uh, yeah, and he, he uh, bowed out after the, the studio, I think, shut the film down. I, I find it interesting, though, that even though Hooper didn't direct it, there's a real similarity and a real... Um, overlap between the climactic moments of both this movie and Hooper's later film Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and that both end with a chainsaw duel between characters which I think we'll see shortly in the trailer here. Yeah I, I wonder if uh, you know this film didn't inspire you know Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 I mean it does uh, you know look forward to it quite a bit. Definitely in terms of the humor and the the satirical nature, for sure. Yeah, and, and I gotta say, I think the the, the 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 finale of this film is probably one of the the, the greatest moments in the '80s horror. I think, and it's something that's unforgettable. Even people who aren't horror fans, you know, remember you know the scene with the chainsaws and the pig mask. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, really great stuff here in this one. And it got that particular issue of Fangoria banned, didn't it? It was like issue number nine was banned from newsstands because it featured that pig, bloody pig, pig head on the cover. Right. Yeah. Quick shout out to Nancy Parsons, one of my favorite 80s actresses. She plays the sister Ida, is perhaps best known as Miss Ballbricker from the Porky's movies. Here's Percy Rodriguez again, narrating Mother's Day. Mother's Day, this is an early Troma Studios release, directed by Charles Kaufman, who is brother of Troma founder Lloyd Kaufman. Not a movie that Lloyd wanted to release, if I'm not mistaken. I don't, I don't think I don't think this was a film that Lloyd was happy with necessarily. I think that I think in the overall scheme of things, I think Mother's Day was probably one of the best productions that uh, that Troma had put out. I think certainly it's a, an effective uh, de deliverance style slasher thriller. 
Uh, but also a pretty demented uh, commercial satire, I believe, too. Charles Kaufman is not to be confused with Charlie Kaufman, the independent or uh, absurdist filmmaker behind movies like uh, Being John Malkovich and Synecdoche, New York. But this Charles Kaufman is responsible for actually a lot of cartoon work. He wrote episodes of the Dennis the Menace cartoon, which I don't know if I remember ever existed. Yeah, I don't even know if I've ever seen the Dennis the Menace cartoon. But he wrote episodes of the real Ghostbusters, which I think is one of the best cartoon series of the 80s. The thing I remember most and I love most about Mother's Day, too, is the sort of um, exploitative punk rock aesthetic of the movie, where one of the murderous brothers fancies himself a big punk rock and new wave fan and is constantly listening to his little radio in between raping and murdering various female characters they come across. Now, Mother's Day was banned in the UK until as recently as 2015. It was finally released with an 18 certificate. And when it was originally released in Germany, it was cut by 14 minutes. 14 minutes. Hmm. Not much of a movie left there. <laughs> I think the director of photography, uh, Joe Mangine, had went on to do, become a director. Uh, I think he, uh, he's responsible for Neon Maniacs. Oh, is Not that featured here in the, the, the compilation, but uh, an interesting film. Well, we were just talking about <clears throat> 80s, new wave, and punk rock representations in film, and... Here you see one of the worst with New Year's Evil. These are perhaps the lamest looking, fakest looking punk rockers that you're going to see in a feature. And the lead in the film is actually portrayed as a punk rock TV show host. It's the actress Roz Kelly, who is perhaps best remembered as Pinky Tuscadero, Fonzie's unrequited love from Happy Days. Yeah, this was an early Canon Films distributed uh, picture here. Uh, that was released shortly after uh, Golan and Globus had took over uh, the company from Dennis Friedland and Christopher C. Dewey. Uh, the director, Emmett Alston, had gone on to do a couple of interesting films, uh, you know, one with uh, a wacky uh, Shokasugi uh, ninja film, Nine Deaths of a Ninja, and a, and a film that was released on uh, video, but I think it was, I think it was Tribal, it was a Vidmark, uh, I believe a, a film called uh, Demon Warp, which is oh, a, right. a, a film that's something in need of discovery or, or a Blu-ray release, because it's a, it's a, it's a pretty crazy fucking horror movie <laughs> with slashers and Bigfoot and aliens, and it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> I'm a big fan of 80s teen sex films, and Austin apparently directed a movie called Three-Way Weekend, the same year, 1980, which involves a bisexual stripper and her bisexual masseuse girlfriend who go camping in the woods and wind up getting stalked by a pervert in a gorilla mask. So that's now on the top of my list. Yeah, I think, I, think I need to see that down. too. Me too. On a double feature with uh, Tanya's Island. <laughs> All right, it's Nightmare. We made reference earlier to Tom Savini and the fact that he was really sort of the breakout star of 1980s special effects. And this is one of the movies that is sort of controversial in his repertoire, or his alleged repertoire. Yeah, it attempted to capitalize on the, the Tom Savini name, where Tom Savini claims to have only served as an advisor on this film, although the producers obviously took full advantage of Tom Savini while he was on the set to, to snap numerous photographs of him, you know, displaying various different effects techniques and that sort of thing. This particular trailer here is the Tom Savini... Uh, uh, 
advertised. It, it, he's Tom Savini is not advertised on this trailer, but if you refer back to Trailer Trauma One, we have the same trailer with the Tom Savini cards intact. Uh, so it says, you know, Nightmare by the creator of Dawn of the Dead and Friday the Thirteenth. It, you know, yet another one in the series of psychologically scarred killers who have some sort of sexual hang-up that requires them to brutalize and otherwise torture various female characters. I, I would put this a notch above some of the others, though, from the era. I think whether Savini was directly involved or not, it's got really impressive and really disturbing practical effects. Yeah, the film is grisly and disturbing, to say the least. Uh, I think it's very effective for, <laughs> for what it is. Uh, you know, I find the film, uh, you know, uh, immensely watchable each time I go back to take a look at it. We all three worked in the same video store at one time, and we had the big box version under the title Nightmare, but then we had some crappy, no-budget label version. Blood Splash. Blood right? Splash. And somebody actually randomly rented both movies. <laughs> At the same time. And came back and said, these are both the same movie. We had no idea that that, that existed. <laughs> Nightmare, a.k.a. Nightmares in a Damaged Brain by Romano Scavellini. And, and then we, also, that, yes. the big box version the, had the full frame and the scene where he's in the peep show it's a very explicit scene in that that is cropped out when it's shown in its proper aspect ratio but on the full screen version you really get an eyeful <laughs> and here we have Paul Lynch's Prom Night starring Jamie Lee Curtis in her second 1980 horror title you know we were talking about earlier before the recording the success of horror in general in the 1980s, and specifically slasher films. I would mention the fact that of all the slasher films from the 80s, Prom Night is the second most successful, at least financially. And we're talking just about slasher, not horror overall. But behind Friday the 13th, which made $39 million, Prom Night's number two with a $15 million haul on a budget of about $1 million. So a very profitable film, which explains why it would be followed by three sequels. Yeah, on the list of 100 top grossing films for 1980, Prom Night was number 49, with Friday the 13th being number 18. Of course, Empire Strikes Back was the uh, the big earner for that year. This is another Canadian release. It's this time produced by Peter Simpson, who also produced the Canadian slasher favorite, Curtains. Peter Simpson actually produced all of the films in the Prom Night series, which after this original, ditched the idea of the slasher motif and instead favored a character named Mary Lou Maloney, who is a dead prom queen, who comes back from the grave for vengeance. We see Mary Lou in Prom Nights 2, 3, and 4. Yeah, sure, by, by the point uh, Prom Night 2 had come out, uh, you know, the slasher film genre was kind of replaced by the rubber reality subgenre, you know, inspired by, you know, films like Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Prom Night 2 plays almost like an Elm Street sequel. Yeah, it, it, it's, yeah you could put Freddy Krueger in that film <laughs> and uh, you know, you'd know you have a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. Yeah, Prom Night 2 is actually a pretty good movie. I, I think it's a superior film to the original. Let's not give short shrift to our next feature. This is Bill Malone's Scared to Death, which is a low-budget horror sci-fi film that seems like a slasher until it's revealed that it's actually a genetically engineered monster who's behind all the killings. Uh, the monster is called the Singenor, and it's definitely, in my opinion, the best ripoff of H.R. Giger's design from the movie Alien. It says he 
he took three months designing and sculpting that suit and then made the entire feature for just seventy-four thousand dollars. Uh, yeah, I really love this film. I mean, it, whereas it's, uh, you know, you know, it's not the greatest movie ever made, but I love films that just wear their inspirations right there on their sleeve. And this film is obviously, you know, a, a direct uh, cash-in, uh, you know, uh, on uh, Halloween and, and, and Alien. Uh, and, you know, right down to the, 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 the killer POV sequence from Halloween, you know, that, that, that's shown right in the early part of this film. Uh, according to IMDb, in the trivia area, it says that... Uh, the original uh, hero for this film might have been Rick Springfield, uh, you know, in an alternate universe. Uh, that would have been something to see. There's a shadowy view of the Sinjinor there. The Sinjinor was actually featured in a sequel titled Sinjinor, not directed by Bill Malone, but actually shows the creature in much clearer images than you see in the original feature, where he's mostly in the shadows, the majority of the film. David Gale in that movie? I believe David Gale is in no. Sinjinor. That's right, David Gale from Bill Malone, obviously a big fan of Alien. You know, he went on to direct a more, uh, a bit even bigger steal of Alien in in 1985's Creature. Uh, Creature. And by the way, that was Ross Hagen, the uh, the exploitation actor, you know, uh, television regular. Uh, Ross Hagen uh, narrating that trailer there. Very little narration in there, but uh, that was him. It's kind of interesting. All right, so what can we say about this movie that hasn't been said a million times before? This is, of course... Not much. The teaser trailer for Stanley Kubrick's version of Stephen King's novel, The Shining. And I do think that it's one of the most effective teasers of all time, from the music to the stark imagery to what you're about to see emerging from the elevator doors. It just doesn't spoil anything from the film, but definitely yeah. gives you a sense of horror. Now, at the time that this trailer was made, the MPAA wouldn't allow blood in a trailer unless it was red band, uh, it, which means that it would only be allowed to be shown before an R-rated film. But somehow Kubrick convinced them that this was not blood, that it was just rusty water. Yeah, leaky pipe perhaps, <laughs> the, the elevator shaft, or maybe cranberry juice uh, you know, that spilled down there from the kitchen or something. It's not cranberry juice, Harry. <laughs> Shining Don't is... Don't know how he would have got away with that one. The most successful financially uh, film of 1980, horror film of 1980, yep. bringing in $44 million, just surpassing Friday the 13th by about $5 million. Of course, it also cost $20 million to make, so it's not the most profitable horror film. Silent Scream. Silent Scream, interesting story about the making of this film. The entire movie was shot and completed in 1977, but when the producers looked at the final product, they didn't think it was strong enough to be released. So they brought in screenwriting brothers Jim and Ken Wheat to punch up the script, and the brothers basically rewrote the entire film from scratch. So the whole original movie had to be scrapped and filmed all over. When you watch the 1980 version of Silent Scream, you're only seeing about 12 minutes of the original version that was salvaged. They also added more named characters or more named actors such as Yvonne DiCarlo, Cameron Mitchell, and Barbara Steele. Yeah, I really love Barbara Steele in this film. It's a great latter-day part for her. And uh, hey, I'm a big fan of Rebecca Balding here, the young, uh, the young female lead here who was also seen in uh, 1981's The Boogans. Uh, really cute actress who I thought was. Uh, really a good match for these kind of a movies. I mean, it's a shame that, uh, I think she, she got out of films not too long after this. I think she married someone who got, who she, you know, she didn't have to. Uh, coaxed her to get out of films, but uh, yeah, I thought she was, a, she was a good actress for these kind of films. Uh, of note, my father designed the original one sheet of When the Screaming Stops and was always annoyed that he felt they 
Silent Scream kind of cribbed his design for that. Not really, but he'll gripe about it if you ask him. Now, another thing about the Wheat Brothers, too, uh, they, they had wrote a screenplay for Apt Pupil, a 1987 adaptation of the Stephen King novel with Ricky Schroeder that was uh, played with some production problems, but apparently the film was completed but never released. Uh, I'd love to track down a copy of that one of these days. If anybody out there has a, a copy, they could uh, they could send it to us. Um, I'd love to see it. All right, this is our second Jamie Lee Curtis slasher film in 1980, and our third horror film overall. This is following Prom Night and The Fog. We've got Terror Train, feature film debut of director Roger Spottiswood. Uh, Spottiswood began his career as an editor. He worked with Sam Peckinpah on Straw Dogs, also worked with Walter Hill and went on to make more big-budget movies after Terror Train, things like Turner and Hooch with Tom Hanks, Tomorrow Never Dies, the Pierce Brosnan Bond film, and also the man responsible for Stop or My Mom Will Shoot with Stallone and Estelle Getty. And Terror Train was uh, shot by frequent uh, Stanley Kubrick collaborator John Alcott, who uh, was responsible for the cinematography here. Uh, you know, he would, all, he would go on to uh, do a few other 80s fan favorites uh, in 1982, The Beastmaster and Vice Squad. Now they filmed this entire movie on a soundstage with the train cars sitting still. Obviously they didn't film it on a moving train, but they would have people rocking the train cars to give it the... Um, the illusion. The of, illusion that it was, yes, motion. As, David, as David Copperfield is on the screen, the illusion the that it's moving. Uh, is this David Copperfield's only role where he's not playing David Copperfield. I can't think of any other film where he plays a character as opposed to being himself. Oh, I can't think of one. But, uh, you know, I, I enjoy Terror Train. We, we, uh, we screened it not too many years ago, and uh, I think it's uh, still very effective. Uh, and it's certainly one of the above uh, average slasher films, I think. Uh, yeah, you know, it has a lot going for it. It has a unique, uh, has a unique setting and, uh, you know, another Canadian production, too. Another here. Sandy Howard. There. Yeah. Okay, this is The Unseen. The Unseen is another favorite from my childhood with HBO. I remember as a kid being really freaked out by this movie, and especially the scenes featuring character actor Sidney Lassick. Uh, Sidney Lassick plays the father in The Unseen, this sort of unhinged, seemingly you know, meek and mild character who's truly psychopathic. Uh, Lassick's perhaps best remembered playing the character Cheswick in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. But there's a particular sequence in this movie where he's speaking to the mummified corpse of his father and imagining his father humiliating him from his childhood, and it's really unsettling. Yeah, speaking of Sidney Lassica, he was an actor who appeared in a number of films and television. Uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest and a number of other titles. But Sidney Lassica was an actor who apparently uh, never quit his day job. Uh, I believe he was. Uh, he, I believe he was a cabbie, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you know, and he, he, he never stopped driving the cab, I don't think, while he was appearing in all these films. He, he didn't do it, he wasn't a big star, but right. I guess he needed that day job still. But he was the guy who never was that, I guess, had, didn't have a whole lot of faith in, uh, you know, in Hollywood. Uh, this, this is an interesting film. I think this film uh, does something a little different than, than most slasher films of its type. And it's interesting that this film was actually directed by Danny Steinman, who had gone on to direct uh, Friday 13th Part 5. Uh, this movie seems to me to be something of a dry run for Friday Five. Uh, Danny Simon had his name removed from this film, uh, and he's credited as Peter Foleg uh, because the producers evidently chopped out a lot of the violence uh, in the murders and such. 
Um, but yeah, all the familiar hall hallmarks, uh, you know, from uh, from Friday Five, I think, are, are here in this film, and it does have quite a wallop, I think, in the un uh, the uns, uh, you know, expected ending here too in the film. Are we spoiling the ending? No, not right now, because right. we are coming onto our final trailer of the of the year. This is without warning. I love this movie so much. <laughs> This is another one that I would love to show if we could have retracted. Yeah, record. this film remained elusive for a number of years for whatever reason. Um, you know, until the the recent what was it, Blu-ray DVD that yeah, came out. Yeah, Screen Factory put out. Um, yeah, but a film that I always really liked, and uh, you know, uh, you know, I always wish I could find a print of it for uh, you know to do some kind of screening of. Uh, I missed out on a 16 millimeter print of this film on eBay once, and uh, you know, I always regretted it. It's a movie that has a plot that'll sound familiar to many viewers. This is a movie about an alien hunter who comes to Earth and kills humans to bring them back as trophies. In fact, the alien, and without warning, is played by late actor Kevin Peter Hall, who played the alien hunter in both Predator and Predator 2. Well, that's about it for us here. Uh, this is our last trailer of 1980. Uh, thanks for joining us, everybody. We had a, we had a good time with this. We uh, not quite sure of uh, getting together here and, uh, and doing this, but this is a, a, you know, our first attempt at this commentary, and I think it'll probably be the one that you'll hear on the disc. So. Oh, let's hope so. <laughs> and I would say that the following commentaries, be sure to tune in for Chris Pajali in 1981 and some of the subsequent commentary years, where hopefully folks with perhaps a bit more knowledge and a bit more expertise than us even will give you even greater insights into the subsequent movies. Yes. Thanks for stopping, folks. Thank you. Hi, I'm Chris Pajali from Temple of Schlock, and today we'll be watching some horror movie trailers from 1981, a year that has a bit of a reputation as being the year of the slasher movie. The nice thing about watching these in alphabetical order is that we start with an American werewolf in London and we end with Wolfen, neither of which are slasher movies. I've done a, a few audio commentaries before this, but I've always been either the moderator or I've been with a, a couple different people. So this is my first solo flight. Please bear with me. Uh, John Landis, the writer and director of An American Werewolf in London, came up with the idea for the story uh, while he was working on the Clint Eastwood World War II movie, Kelly's Heroes, in Yugoslavia in 1969. He wrote the script, and two years later, when he was making his feature film debut with Schlock, he showed the script to Rick Baker, who was interested, and, and immediately got to work on not only designing the werewolf, but uh, trying to figure out how to pull off the transformation scene as was written in the screenplay. And you know, it took 10 years for this movie to get made, and when it was made and released in 1981, uh, the transformation sequence uh, that people saw it was exactly uh, the way it was written 10 or 12 years earlier in the script. Uh, Rick Baker won the first, uh, the first ever Best Makeup Academy Award for this movie. It was the first of seven Oscars that he's won. In a moment, we'll be hearing uh, Bad Moon Rising by Creedence Clearwater Revival, uh, one of several moon-themed pop or rock songs heard in the movie. We also hear Moon Dance by Van Morrison and three different versions of Rogers and Hart's Blue Moon, uh, Bobby Vinton's Sam Cooke's and the Marcells. Uh, what we don't hear are Elvis Presley's version of Blue Moon, nor do we hear Bob Dylan's version. 
Uh, Landis uh, couldn't get permission to, to use either of those. Uh, he should have used the Supremes version of Blue Moon. Uh, they did an entire album of Rodgers and Hart songs. I know he used their song, Come See About Me, in Beverly Hills Cop 3. Uh, but anyway, uh, also, uh, we don't hear Moonshadow by Cat Stevens. Uh, but there's a... Uh, I guess Landis couldn't get that one either. Um, but there's, there's a nice version of that by LaBelle uh, on their second album, which is actually called Moonshadow. No narration in this trailer. Uh, most of the ones we're going to be looking at today have narration. Uh, this is the only one that doesn't have any. Uh, the next one has a little bit at the end. Uh, the Boogans is the next trailer. Boogans was, uh, was written, uh, well, one of several writers on this film is Jim Kalf. Uh, worked on this under his Bob Hunt pseudonym, which is the same pseudonym he used for The Hidden uh, seven years later. Kalf uh, went on to have a great career. Uh, actually, he's still working. Uh, a lot of big major studio films, a lot of major Hollywood films he's written. Uh, and uh, like I said, he's, he's still working. He, uh, he, in fact, he has a movie out in theaters right now, Mon uh, Money Monster. So 35 years later, he's still writing monster movies, you could say. <laughs> uh, if you remember Sneak Previews, the original Siskel and Ebert show, they used to do a Dog of the Week segment where uh, each of them would pick the worst movie they'd seen for that week. Uh, December of 1981, uh, Roger Ebert chose The Boogans one week as his Dog of the Week. Uh, and that was the same week that Gene Siskel chose Dr. Butcher, M.D. for his worst movie of that week. This was produced by Taft International, which was formerly uh, Sun Classics. Uh, it was directed by James L. Conway, who directed many films for Sun Classics, including In Search of Noah's Ark, Beyond and Back, The Lincoln Conspiracy, The Fall of the House of Usher, episodes of The Grizzly Adams television series, Hangar 18, and so on. Uh, the music that we're hearing is by Bob Summers in full-on John Carpenter mode. Uh, Summers uh, was also a, a Sun Classics Taft International regular, uh, did music for um, all of those James Conway movies I just mentioned and some, some other Sun Classics productions like uh, Amazing World of Psychic Phenomena. There was a, a novelization of the, of the Boogans published uh, by Bantam. Uh, whenever I remember to mention it, I'll mention that there were uh, novelizations for a lot of these movies, unless they were based on novels, and then there were you know, sometimes movie tie-in editions. But I'll, I'll mention any uh, either novelizations or literary sources as we move on. Here's The Burning, which was released by Filmways uh, after Sam Arkoff had departed the company. Uh, in fact, when this was being made, Arkoff was uh, making his own slash up the campers horror film titled Three Blind Mice which came out a couple of years later as The Final Terror. This movie was produced by Bob and Harvey Weinstein. It was the first production from their Miramax company. Bob and Harvey Weinstein started out in the business as rock concert producers in the Buffalo area. But they were always film fans also, and they segued into uh, the film business by distributing and then producing and uh, the first, first couple of films they released were rock 
rock concert oriented movies like Rock Show with Paul McCartney and Wings and Concert for Campuchia and Secret Policeman's Ball. Uh, Tom Savini did the effects for this movie instead of the effects for Friday the 13th Part 2. Uh, I'll talk about that when we get to Friday the 13th Part 2. A uh, lot of uh, soon-to-be or eventually uh, to be stars in The Burning, like uh, Jason Alexander and Holly Hunter. Here is Dead and Buried. The voice we're hearing uh, is Percy Rodriguez's. Percy Rodriguez narrated uh, many trailers. If you're a Trekkie, you know him as Commodore Stone in the Court Martial episode of Star Trek. He was also Dr. Miles on Peyton Place, but he narrated a ton of trailers uh, in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, uh, most notably Jaws. This is the first of several trailers we'll see today that are narrated by Percy Rodriguez. Uh, this movie was written by Ronald Shusett and Dan O'Bannon and directed by Gary Sherman. Uh, the three of them uh, had first worked together on the John Huston film Phobia uh, a few years before this. Uh, Phobia was based on an original Gary Sherman screenplay. Uh, Shusett and O'Bannon optioned it did a rewrite on it, and then I guess producers, some new producers came in. There was some kind of a, a shake-up, or maybe the, the project changed hands in some way. Three other writers ended up rewriting their screenplay. Uh, O'Bannon ended up having his name removed, but Shusett and Sherman were not so lucky. Uh, but they did enjoy working with each other on that film, and so this was a bit of a reunion for them. Although, uh, I'm not sure O'Bannon had much input on the screenplay, even though he is credited. I, I've, I've heard conflicting reports about just, just how much of the screenplay was his. Uh, we just heard Percy Rodriguez say twice in the same trailer from the creators of Alien. They really wanted to drive that point home because uh, Alien had been such a big hit. Stan Winston did the effects for that movie, by the way, I should mention. Here's Deadly Blessing, and it's Percy Rodriguez again narrating. And he's actually the narrator of the film, too. This was Wes Craven's first major studio film, and it was also the first of a few movies of his that had uh, the endings altered. Uh, I should say uh, new endings imposed on him by the producers. Uh, the same thing happened with The Nightmare on Elm Street and also Deadly Friend. This is one of Sharon Stone's first films. We'll see a spider drop into her mouth later in the trailer. We just saw Michael Berryman from Craven's The Hills Have Eyes. There's Ernest Borgnine, who unfortunately was nominated for a Worst Supporting Actor Razzie Award uh, for, for this movie. Uh, I don't think he deserved the nomination at all. Uh, I can't imagine anybody else playing this role, especially after he played kind of similar parts in Violent Saturday and Sunday in the Country and even uh, The Devil's Reign. Here's a scene that anticipates the, uh, a, a similar scene in a, a Nightmare on Elm Street, a scene where Heather Langenkamp is in the bathtub and Freddy's glove uh, pops up from the suds. Here, uh, three years before that, we have a snake creep in and, and pop up 
from the suds. I think this is the sequence with Sharon Stone where she gets a spider in her mouth coming up. Uh, if you like gossip, you should pick up uh, Joe Astrahaas's book. Yeah, there's the spider. Joe Astrahaas's book, uh, Hollywood Animal. I'm not going to repeat any of the gossip, but he's got some some dirt about the uh, the making of this movie and Sharon Stone. I'm not one to spread rumors or anything, but uh, get the book. I'm going to be uh, plugging a lot of books today, I have a feeling. <laughs> yeah, the producers of that, Max and Micheline Keller, they had produced uh, Craven's TV movie, uh, Summer Fear, with Linda Blair, uh, three or four years before that. Here's Evil Speak with Clint Howard. Everyone's known a boy. This was also a dog of the week on sneak previews, uh, although I don't remember. I remember watching it. I remember it being chosen because it was, uh, I think, the first time I'd heard of this movie. It hadn't opened in Syracuse yet, uh, I don't believe, which is Syracuse is where I grew up. Um, so I don't remember whose choice it was, whether it was Siskel's or Ebert's, but it was a dog of the week. Uh, this movie is directed by Eric Weston, who is an actor but also did a number of jobs behind the scenes as well on the low-budget movies that he worked on or acted in in the 70s. Uh, movies like The Farmer and uh, Billion Dollar Hobo. Yeah, he was a casting director, production manager, post-production supervisor. Uh, did a lot of things on those films. This so was released by the Marino Company, uh, which was run by Frank Marino who uh, had been at New World Pictures for a number of years and uh, was really uh, the person responsible for acquiring all the great foreign art films that Roger Corman released in the 70s. Things like Amarcord and Cries and Whispers and Derso Yuzala, Story of Adele H, Quartet, Love on the Run, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, after this, uh, Evil Speak, uh, he went to Omni Pictures where he was uh, responsible for acquiring uh, House by the Cemetery for uh, U.S. distribution. Also after the fall of New York, uh, which got slapped with an X rating for violence. And uh, Frank Marino you know, went to the MPAA and, and uh, really got behind the film, uh, appealed that X rating. Uh, unfortunately, it had to be cut for an R, but, uh, but he really went to bat for the film. He's one of the... Uh, unsung heroes, I think, of the 70s and 80s uh, independent film scene. Here's uh, Fear No Evil. Originally titled The Antichrist, uh, this was filmed in August of 1979 as Mark of the Beast. It was filmed in Rochester, New York and uh, the Thousand Islands region. The castle that's shown in the movie is Bolt Castle which is located on Hart Island in the Thousand Islands, uh, was designed by George Bolt, who had been the general manager of the Waldorf Astoria. Uh, he, uh, he actually you know, designed the castle, and uh, I guess his wife passed away in 1904, and he just lost uh, all interest in completing the castle. So he uh, deserted it, and uh, it was never finished. It was just uh, unoccupied for 70 years. Uh, until the Thousand Islands uh, Bridge Authority bought it for $1 in 1977 and uh, began renting it out for events, uh, weddings, and 
graduation parties, I guess, and, and film shoots. Although I think this is the only film that was shot there. Uh, all the money that came from the rentals went toward the restoration and uh, completion of the castle. And today it's a, it's a big tourist attraction in the Thousand Islands region. The makeup artist on this film, Richard J. Silverthorne, also plays Lucifer in the movie. Uh, he wrote an excellent article for Fangoria number 11 about the making of this movie. He also wrote a novelization of the film titled Satan's Spawn. It was published by Avon Books in 1988, uh, a full seven years after the movie came out, and sadly uh, a year after Silverthorne died of AIDS. At College, ah, now we're uh, deep into the slasher craze right now with Final uh, Exam. This was directed by Jimmy Houston, who did a few movies for Earl Owensby, uh, movies like Dark Sunday and Death Driver. This was filmed partly at Earl Owensby Studios in Shelby, North Carolina, uh, also in and around Limestone College in Gaffney, South Carolina. Uh, the director of photography on the movie is Daryl Cathcart, who shot some of Owensby's films like Buckstone County Prison and Wolfman and Living Legend. Got to mention the novelization. Uh, there was a novelization for this, published by Pinnacle Books, the people who brought us Mac Bolin and Remo Williams and a lot of other great and not-so-great and downright terrible men's adventure paperbacks during the 70s and 80s. The, tr the uh, tagline for this movie was, He's Come Back, which was you know, designed to sound a lot like The Night He Came Home, the Halloween tagline. Another tagline for this movie was, Some may pass the test, God help the rest. This movie was produced and distributed by Motion Picture Marketing, uh, a company that liked to use those rhyming taglines. Uh, they put out a film called Cemetery Girls, and the tagline was, They rise at night for more than a bite. Alphabetically, I think this is uh, Friday the 13th. Yes, this is Friday the 13th Part 2. Uh, also, there's a novelization for this. Uh, Tom Savini, mentioned during the Burning trailer, uh, did not do the effects for this movie. He did the Burning instead. Uh, he thought the, the whole idea of this movie was stupid, you know, that Jason would just be roaming around the forest for 20 years. Uh, also, the Weinsteins paid him a lot of money to work on the Burning, so he went to Buffalo and worked on that instead of this. I think uh, Sean, well, Sean Cunningham also uh, did not return from the first movie uh, to direct this one. Steve Miner, who had been a producer on the first film, uh, he stepped in and directed this one. Uh, as far as the effects, uh, I think Stan Winston, yeah, Stan Winston was approached uh, after Savini declined uh, the, the, uh, the project. Stan Winston, I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted. It's such a great trailer. Um, I'm watching it, and I'm kind of losing my train of thought. Stan Winston was offered the job after Savini turned it down, uh, but Winston was also working on another project. So, uh, so Dick Smith recommended Carl Fullerton for the job. Fullerton had just worked on Wolfen. Uh, when he uh, met with Miner to discuss uh, working on this, he brought the severed Dick O'Neill head from Wolfen with him, uh, and it was so lifelike, uh, so realistic, that uh, that 
the you know, miner said, yeah, you, you know, you got the job. Uh, Warrington Gillette is credited as playing Jason, uh, but he's only in one shot. It's the shot where Jason crashes through the window. Mostly Jason was played by Steve Daskowitz, who was the stunt double on the film. It's such a good trailer. I, I really like that. I uh, just get wrapped up in it. Uh, this should be the fun house. Yeah. This is a uh, novelization of this one, uh, I should point out, was uh, was written by Dean Koontz. Uh, it was first published under a pseudonym. Uh, he used the pseudonym Owen West for the first printing, uh, but all subsequent printings have credited Koontz, uh, have had his name on the cover. Uh, because there was a delay in the production of this movie, the novelization ended up coming out four or five months before the actual movie. I think it was published in November of 80, and the movie didn't come out until, I think, March of 81. Uh, one of the reasons for the delays, uh, actually it was a 30-day shoot that went a week over schedule. Uh, one of the reasons for that was uh, an entire carnival had to be transported from Akron, Ohio to Florida. Uh, where this was being shot at the old Ivan Tours studio. Producer Steve Bernhardt had worked on the 1976 Kong and one of Toby Hooper's sons was a big fan of Rick Baker's work. So uh, Hooper approached Baker about creating the monster and playing the monster in this film. Uh, Baker had some reservations about uh, the birth defect angle of the monster, uh, but he did design the monster, did not play the monster because uh, the way the monster is described in the script, uh, it's described as being seven feet tall, and Baker said, you know, I'm not close to that height. Um, Wayne Doba, a mime from San Francisco, uh, who's even shorter than Rick Baker, ended up playing the monster. Uh, most of the effects for the film, though, were done by Craig Reardon. Here's Ghost Story, and we're hearing Percy Rodriguez again. Uh, Rodriguez, I mentioned he had done the Jaws trailer and Jaws 2 by this time, uh, also Exorcist and uh, They Came From Within and Taxi Driver. Uh, after this, he went on to do uh, a lot of horror movie trailers, uh, a few more that we'll hear on this, uh, on this segment for uh, 1981, but also you know things like Videodrome, Children of the Corn, The Stuff, Night of the Creeps, Chopping Mall, House. Creepshow 2, The Gate, Tales from the Dark Side, The Movie, Dead Alive. Uh, he, he was popular. He just had a, a great voice that, that was, you know, it was perfect for horror movie trailers. Uh, this was uh, the first major motion picture based on a Peter Straub novel. Uh, I, I say major motion picture because four years before this, uh, his third novel, Julia, which was his first supernatural novel, uh, had been made into the movie Full Circle with uh, Mia Farrow. Uh, the reason it wasn't titled Julia uh, after the, the title of the book uh, was because the, uh, the Lillian Hellman story with Jane Fonda and Vanessa Redgrave uh, was released the same year, 1977, and that was titled Julia. So to avoid confusion with having two movies titled Julia come out the same year, uh, the Mia Farrow one, based on the Straub novel, was retitled Full Circle. Uh, and it did almost no business, made no impression on anybody, really. Uh, but it ended up being re-released four years later under the title The Haunting of Julia. 
Uh, actually, in May 1981, uh, the same year that Ghost Story came out, uh, a couple of months after that, I think. Yeah, read the paperback. That was a movie tie-in. Here's uh, Graduation Day. Now, if you uh, if you look around the internet, you'll find uh, some some mentions of Christopher George, who is the star of this movie. Uh, Christopher George being the uncle of Vanna White, who is in this movie as well. Uh, it was not a familial uh, relationship. Uh, he, he was not a relative. He was not related to her uh, in any way. Uh, what I've been told anyway was, was that he was not a relative. Uh, he had dated Vanna White's mother. Uh, apparently at some point and then for years after that uh, whenever he would show up in a TV show or a movie on television she would tell Vanna White uh, you know, oh that's that's your Uncle Chris so uh, so she just got used to hearing Uncle Chris so you know, fast forward to 1979 or 1980 Christopher George uh, and his agent Tor Berg go into an El Torito restaurant in Burbank and Vanna White's working there so she uh, approaches Christopher George and says, you know, hi, do you remember me? I'm, I'm Vanna. I'm Joan's daughter. And, oh, that's great. You know, but, uh, and, and Tor Berg said, oh, do you have representation? No? Oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll represent you. Uh, my agency is Galaxy Artists. So, uh, so that's why uh, both Christopher George and Vanna White are in this movie. And Tor Berg uh, really pushed Vanna White for uh, about a year in some projects uh, that were proposed but were never made. Uh, one of them was Cleopatra Jones and the Cambodian Connection, which was going to star uh, a few people from Galaxy Artists. Uh, mostly, I mean, you know, Tamara Dobson was going to return as Cleopatra Jones, but Christopher George was going to be in it, and uh, Peter Lawford, Dan Haggerty, Fred Williamson, and Vanna White. It was a, a project that was put together by Tour Berg, and it never happened. But a year and a half later, uh, Vanna White got Wheel of Fortune and, you know, <laughs> made a fortune and became a household name. Here's Great White, narrated by Percy Rodriguez, which I find hilarious because, uh, you know, this is a Jaws ripoff, and he did the trailers for Jaws and Jaws 2. Universal did not find this hilarious. They filed an injunction against the movie four days before its March 5th opening. Uh, we'll see uh, at the end of this trailer, so the terror begins March 5th. That's March 5th, 1982. Uh, a lot of the movies here, uh, or some of them anyway, you know, they were made in 1981 but released later. Uh, but the, the majority of them were actual 1981 releases, but this is one of the ones that was made in 81 and released later uh, in 82, or uh, not released, or pulled from release, I should say. I mean, this, this did show up in major markets, uh, but it had been uh, yanked from release before it got to New York. There were some screenings, and, and then uh, it never actually got to New York, but it played Los Angeles, Seattle, Boston, Cleveland, uh, a number of places before uh, before it got pulled by Universal. Film Ventures apparently put four and a half million dollars into the the campaign for Great White. Uh, it, it included a, a really beautiful three um, D press book, which I'm sure spooked Universal because they were getting ready to do the uh, 
the 3D, you know, Jaws 3D at that point. By 3D, I mean it was a, like a pop-up book. It was, it was really a, a, a nice-looking press book. Here's Halloween 2, directed by Rick Rosenthal, uh, who had graduated from Harvard and then studied acting and filmmaking at the American Film Institute, where he made a short film that he hoped would attract persons of influence in the film industry. Uh, it was a black comedy titled Moonface. And he had a screening and, and people, you know, important people in, in the, the Hollywood film community did show up for it, but as they were leaving, they were heard saying, that was a black comedy? Where were the black people? Uh, Rosenthal realized at that point, in addition to not being very bright, uh, a lot of the, the big wigs in Hollywood uh, really needed it spelled out for them, like what genre they were watching. So in 79, 1979, uh, Rosenthal made a 30-minute film called The Toyer, which is based on a short play by Gardner McKay, and it's a psychological thriller, and it's an obvious, uh, that, you know, it's obvious to anybody seeing it that it's a psychological thriller. Uh, one of the people who saw it at the screening uh, was David Gersh, who was John Carpenter's agent, and uh, he recommended the film to, uh, to John Carpenter and also to Deborah Hill. And they were impressed, and they they offered this film to Rick Rosenthal. So the Toyer the Toyer helped get Rosenthal this uh, this big break. Uh, while this movie was being made, Carpenter was also shooting uh, additional scenes for the TV version of the first Halloween. Uh, enough had to be cut from that, uh, where it needed to be expanded for network television, so Carpenter stepped in and shot new scenes while Halloween 2, Halloween 2 was being made. Here's Happy Birthday to Me. This was filmed in Montreal, uh, except the drawbridge scene. That was shot in Phoenix, New York, which is about 20 minutes outside of Syracuse, my neck of the woods. Uh, I was living in Syracuse at that time. Uh, in fact, when this movie opened in Syracuse, it opened the same day as The Hand and uh, Mother's Day and The Fan. Uh, also, I think the Chuck Norris movie, The Octagon, I think came back. Uh, it was actually uh, given a second release that same day. Um, but my, my point is, uh, Happy Birthday to Me and The Hand, uh, I'm sorry, and Mother's Day, both had like the, the most disgusting ad campaigns, I thought. You know, be, being 11 years old at that time, uh, opening up the newspaper Friday morning and seeing uh, the ad for Happy Birthday to Me and, and Mother's Day was just, ugh. I mean, I spent the whole weekend like look, flipping through the newspaper and, and just looking at that, at that ad. I just kind of got obsessed with it. Uh, Glenn Ford, uh, nowhere to be seen in that trailer, by the way. Um, such a great actor, uh, never even nominated for an Academy Award. You just look at all the great movies that he was in, like The Big Heat and Gilda and 310 to Yuma, Experiment in Terror. And that, that I think, was the, his last theatrical film. Um, also, yeah, I mentioned The Supremes earlier. Uh, I'm a big Motown fan. Uh, the Happy Birthday to Me theme song was by Cyrita Wright, who uh, had been married to... Stevie Wonder briefly, but I know they dated for a long time and she was uh, a songwriting collaborator with him and, and a backup singer on some of his songs. And, and uh, they, they were best friends for a long time. Hell Knight from Compass International, 
a company uh, run by Erwin Yablons uh, and Joseph Wolf. Yablons was the uh, producing force behind Halloween. Um, Yablons had previously run Turtle Releasing, which had put out Assault on Precinct 13. Tom Simone, the director of this movie, uh, had made a couple of 3D movies before this, a softcore film called Prison Girls, and uh, also a, a 3D gay film, a uh, gay, gay porn film called Heavy, uh, <laughs> Heavy Equipment. Uh, also did a gay porn horror movie called Sons of Satan, uh, and then the R-rated singing vagina movie Chatterbox. Uh, that's among his credits. Uh, this movie was back in the news uh, a couple of years ago, I think in 2013. Uh, someone named Ray Fook uh, bequeathed all of his tangible property including a 160-acre farm in Lincoln, Illinois, to Peter Barton and Kevin Brophy, two of the stars of this movie. Uh, Peter Barton had been on the TV series Powers of Matthew Starr, uh, also did a soap opera, I forgot which one, uh, but, uh, but he'd been in a soap opera. And Kevin Brophy had been on the short-lived 70s uh, TV show Lucan. Uh, and it turned out uh, Ray Fulk, uh had was really interested in, in wolves, kind of obsessed with wolves, and he had scrapbooks uh, dedicated to these two actors, especially Brophy, uh, because of Lucan. And yeah, uh, it was it was interesting uh, to, to, to see this movie actually get mentioned in news reports again uh, so many years later, and I'm sure it was uh, really a trip for these two actors to, uh, to suddenly you know, be thrust into the spotlight again after so many years. Compass International, yeah, they also released, um, what, Tourist Trap, Nocturna, The Day Time Ended, a movie called Fire that uh, nobody remembers anymore uh, with Alan Garfield. Oh, that voice we're hearing is Brother Theodore, Theodore Gottlieb. He also uh, did the narration for uh, a horror movie called Superstition a year after this. Both movies were released by Almy Pictures. Uh, I mentioned Almy a little while ago because Frank Marino from New World Pictures uh, was with the company at this point. Uh, I think he took over from Mel Marin, who had been at Almy for a couple of years uh, in the early 80s after being at World Northal and Cinema Shares, and you know, a few other companies. Uh, this was a Lucio Fulci movie. It was shot in 81, but it didn't get released until 84. Uh, when it played in Syracuse, uh, it played at a drive-in. It, it actually it opened the same night, or it was playing the same night as... Um, I think it opened the Friday before... Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom because it was I remember seeing it on opening night of Temple of Doom it played with super no not superstition uh, play, actually it played with the next movie we're going to see the trailer for it played with Horror Planet Brother Theodore uh, also did some trailers in the early 70s for Sam Sherman uh, Mad Doctor of Blood Island and Horror of the Blood Monsters. Here's in Seminoid, and the voice we're hearing is Adolf Caesars. 
couple years after this, Caesar would be nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for A Soldier's Story. This was, was released by Almy in 1982 as Inseminoid, very briefly. Not a not a nice movie. <laughs> kind of a disgusting poster. It was retitled Horror Planet, not surprisingly, because the, the whole uh, Inseminoid uh, ad campaign was pretty distasteful. This was written by special makeup effects artists Nick and Gloria Maley as a showcase for their effects company. They had previously worked on such films as Star Wars. You know, you ever, ever heard of that one? Uh, Superman and Superman 2, The Empire Strikes Back. This was filmed almost entirely underground in the Chislehurst Caves outside of London, uh, which doubled for the, uh, the horror planet's alien terrain. Did a nice job of that. The cast of performers included Judy Geeson, Victoria Tennant, and Stephanie Beecham. Here we have Just Before Dawn. Which is Jeff Lieberman's third uh, horror film after uh, Squirm and Blue Sunshine. This was shot in 1979 in Silver Falls State Park near Salem, Oregon. This was uh, originally a screenplay by Joseph Middleton titled The Tennessee Mountain Murders. Then it was called The Last Ritual for a while. It was probably changed uh, to avoid confusion with rituals. Uh, another uh, you know, massacre in the forest uh, type of horror film. Lieberman completely rewrote the script. Uh, he didn't like the, uh, the original script's uh, religious backstory for the killers. Uh, he'd never seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre before he made this movie. Uh, he was more inspired by Deliverance both the book and the film, and he kind of uh, designed Deborah Benson's character to, uh, to be patterned after John Voight's in Deliverance. Uh, while this movie was being made, a character actor, Mike Kellen, uh, who's in it, um, I can't remember what character he plays it, but he's seen in the, in the, uh, in the trailer here. Uh, he had to fly back to New York City three times because he was also making, uh, I think, Paternity, the Burt Reynolds movie, in New York. Uh, he was also shooting, I think, So Fine around this time, but I think it was Paternity was the one that he was going back for. Uh, and the third time he went back, uh, I think Jeff Lieberman and, and George Kennedy said, look, when you come back, can you bring some stuff from New York with you? Um, you know, we want a New York Post, we want bagels and cream cheese, and we want a deck of cards. We want, we want a little bit of New York here uh, in the middle of, uh, you know, the Oregon forest. And he did. When he came back, he had that. And they, they, they sat down, read the New York Post, had their bagels and cream cheese, and played cards. Here's Mind Warp. An Infinity of Terror, which is better known as Galaxy of Terror. Uh, this had three titles. It was released under three titles uh, around the country. You know, depending on what part of the country you were in, you saw... Here's a clip from Battle Beyond the Stars. Here's another one. Uh, this, was, this is best known as Galaxy of Terror, uh, but it was also released as Planet of Horrors. Uh, the director, Bruce Clark, and the writer, Mark Siegler, had worked for Roger Corman in 1969. Uh, on a biker movie called Naked Angels. 
and then they went uh, to I think Avco Embassy and made the Ski Bum with Zalman King, based on a Romain Gary novel, uh, and then like worked on commercials for the next decade uh, until they came back to Corman to make this movie, uh, which has a, a really good cast: uh, Edward Albert, Aaron Moran from Happy Days, Ray Walston, Sid Haig, Robert Englund. Grace Zabriskie, Bernard Behrens, Zalman King again. Which I think this was Zalman King's last film role, I believe. I think he was just uh, stuck stuck with producing after uh, after this movie. Actually, no, I think maybe he was in Savage Harvest, I think. Which was shot around the same time. Anyway, it was one of his last films. Uh, if you see the, the trailer for it uh, under the title Galaxy of Terror, it, it opens with even more footage from Battle Beyond the Stars. Uh, this one, it's just a couple of the special effects. Crash into fear with Mind Warp, an infinity of terror. Starring Edward Albert and Aaron Moran. Here's Ms. 45. Abel Ferrara's uh, follow-up. I guess, to Driller Killer. Star of this, Zoe Tamerlis, was 17 years old when she made this. Uh, she grew up in Mamaroneck, New York, which is not too far from where I'm recording this. I'm in New Rochelle. Mamaroneck is two towns over. Zoe Tamerlis got her start in music. Uh, she later wrote the script for Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant and was planning a, a biopic of John Holmes she was going to write with Ferrara. Ferrara was going to direct, and Christopher Walken was going to play John Holmes. Uh, but uh, sadly, Zoe Tamerlis passed away before that could be made. Uh, Abel Ferrara shows up in this movie as one of the rapists. Uh, he was also a rapist in Nine Lives of a Wet Pussycat, a, a hardcore porn movie that he made uh, before, uh, before making Driller Killer. The overseas rights for this movie were picked up by Warner Brothers on the recommendation of William Friedkin, who really liked the movie. There's, uh, there's Ferrara right there, the rapist. Um, as I was saying, the, the rights were picked up by Warner Brothers based on Friedkin's recommendation. It was retitled Angel of Vengeance uh, for that overseas release. And Ferrara was able to uh, reuse some of the, the artwork from the, the overseas campaign uh, for the domestic release. He just, uh, you know, changed changed it a little bit, put the, the original title, Miss 45, on it, took out Angel of Vengeance, and uh, was able to reuse the overseas campaign. Okay. Here we have a red band trailer for My Bloody Valentine. Paramount, after making so much money off of Friday the 13th, uh, wanted more similar films for 1981. This was uh, the second feature from director George Mahalka. Uh, he had previous, previously done Pinball Summer, which was shot uh, in the summer of 79 in Montreal and released in the U.S. Uh, in 1981 under the title Pick Up Summer. A lot of the uh, cast and crew from that film uh, you know, came on to this one as well. 
film is set in the fictional town of Valentine Bluffs. It was actually filmed in Nova Scotia, uh, in a place called Sydney Falls, which had been a major coal-producing community beginning in the 1760s and continuing to the mid-1970s. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the mine used in the film was still operational until 1975, when it was closed and turned into a tourist attraction. Uh, the special makeup effects for this were done by Tom Berman and had the uh, same cinematographer, uh, Rodney Gibbons, uh, from Pinball Summer. Uh, Gibbons later shot Scanners, too. Like I said, you know, same cinematographer, same producers, some of the same cast members from Pinball Summer. Had the same uh, producer. I mean, the same producers uh, of Happy Birthday to Me uh, were uh, were behind this film. Uh, what happened was uh, Happy Birthday to Me was shot first, and then on the last day of production, they went right into My Bloody Valentine. My Bloody Valentine got released first, though, because it had to make you know a, a, I think a February 11th opening. Friday, February 11th. Paramount again. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, John Dunning and Andre Link. Couldn't find their names. I had to check my notes. Uh, they produced My Bloody Valentine uh, and Happy Birthday to Me. Like I said, um, Happy Birthday to Me was filmed first, but My Bloody Valentine uh, was released first. So Night School was filmed as Terror Eyes. It was originally uh, supposed to be Alfred Soule's follow-up to his film Tanya's Island, uh, but he passed on uh, making this movie and went on to do Pandemonium instead, which was a, a slasher movie spoof. Uh, made fun of movies like this. <laughs> uh, this became the final film of Ken Hughes, who was probably still recovering from you know, reading all of Mae West's dialogue to her through an earpiece in Sextet uh, a couple of years earlier. The, uh, the tagline for this movie was kind of cool. In fact, I, I liked the poster for it. It had a report card, and it's, uh, it said A is for Apple, B is for Bed, C is for Coed, D is for Dead, F is for failing to keep your head. Night School, a lesson in terror. This was Rachel Ward's feature film debut. Uh, she went right from this to another horror movie, one that I mentioned earlier, uh, Three Blind Mice, which uh, was, was uh, released a couple years later as The Final Terror. Uh, but right after Three Blind Mice, she got her big break in Sharky's Machine later in 1981. And that led to uh, even bigger roles in The Thornbirds and Against All Odds. In the New York City area, a Paramount just dumped this movie on a double bill of student bodies. Uh, which is funny because student bodies is, is a comedy. It's a, it's a spoof of movies like this. So you know, on the same double bill, you got a, a slasher movie and a slasher movie spoof. I'm not sure that Night School played in Syracuse. I don't remember it. Uh, I don't remember it opening. It may have come out while I was on vacation. I don't know. Student Bodies, definitely. I remember that coming out. 
Now we're going to do something weird alphabetically. Uh, we have this f next movie, which is called The Final Conflict. We have it filed under Omen 3, uh, which I'm sure was the original title, but uh, it was released as The Final Conflict. Here we have Sam Neill as Damien Thorne at age 32. So, uh, so Damien went from age 4 to 13 to 32. He aged 28 years and 5 years between the first and third Omen movies. Producer of these films, Harvey, uh, sorry, Harvey Bernhard, got the idea for the Omen while having lunch with a friend of his who was a born-again Christian. Uh, and his friend was telling them all about the Book of Revelations. And uh, they started talking about the Antichrist and what if, what if the Antichrist... Uh, came came uh, as a child. Uh, so Bernhard was really excited by that idea and ran home and wrote up a treatment and uh, with his own money, because uh, he was an independent producer, he hired David Seltzer to write a screenplay. Uh, the original title for The Omen, the first Omen, was The Antichrist, uh, interestingly enough, because uh, Fear No Evil, I mentioned earlier, that original title for the screenplay was The Antichrist. Uh, eventually though it became The Omen and The Omen was a, a big hit and led to Omen 2 and Omen 3. And eventually uh, there was an Omen 4. I've never seen that one, I have to say. I just recently revisited the first film. It was shown at the Alamo Draft House. Still works. A lot, a lot of it is, is still effective. Here's the Prowler, and we're hearing Adolf Caesar again as the narrator of the trailer. This was uh, originally titled Rosemary's Killer. Uh, actually, I should bring this up. Uh, about a month ago, I was at an exhumed show in Philadelphia, their X-Fest, and they ran this exact same trailer, but it had the Rosemary's Killer title on it. So I guess when it got picked up for distribution, uh, they just took the same trailer uh, and, and spliced in the Prowler title. Uh, I mentioned during Happy Birthday to Me that uh, Glenn Ford was the star of that movie, but he's not seen in the trailer at all. Uh, the star of this movie is Farley Granger from a couple of great Alfred Hitchcock movies, Strangers on a Train and Rope, and uh, a lot of... Italian movies, uh, but uh, he's, he's in this film, and he's nowhere to be seen in the trailer. This was re-released, you know, I mentioned Rosemary's Killer being the original title. This was re-released, I think, in 1985 as the Pitchfork Massacre. Joseph Zito, the director, uh, visited Tom Savini on the set of Night Riders to discuss Savini working on this film, uh, then visited him again in Buffalo while he was working on The Burning, uh, the burning ran over schedule, so Savini went right from the burning to Cape May, New Jersey, where the Prowler was already being filmed. Uh, and he did the effects uh, for the Prowler, like that one, <laughs> the exploding head. Uh, this film got Joseph Zito the directing job of uh, Friday the 13th, the final chapter. And, you know, then he did Invasion USA and Red Scorpion. He kind of became a, an action director. He had done a few things before this. Uh, he made a movie called Abduction, 
which was very loosely based on the Patty Hearst kidnapping case. And he did another film, too. I'm blanking out on the title, Just though. Um, it's yeah, it's gone. Him. But he, he did a, a, a horror film, I think, in 1979. A lot of these, uh, yeah, I mentioned earlier, uh, 1981 being a year when the MPAA really came down hard on the effects uh, for these films. The Prowler, uh, there, there were two versions of this making the rounds in theaters, uh, one with, with all of the Savini gore and one with all of it removed. <laughs> and you just never knew like, which one you were going to get. Like I know when the Pitchfork Massacre, uh, when, you know, when it was re-released as the Pitchfork Massacre, there were reports that uh, some of those prints had all the gore intact. Here's Road Games. Uh, the uh, the most expensive Australian film up to that time it was uh, one point seventy five million dollars. Stars the great Stacy Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, director Richard Franklin was Australian born, but he attended USC uh, the same time John Carpenter was there. He took film classes. He was a big fan of Hitchcock, and uh, he was trying to arrange a USC screening of Rope and ended up getting a phone call from Hitchcock. And they talked for a long time and uh, ended up becoming friendly and communicating. Uh, and uh, eventually, Franklin got the job to direct Psycho 2. Uh, probably, that probably had a lot to do with this film. Uh, when Franklin was directing Patrick, with screenwriter Everett DeRoche. Uh, he gave a copy of the uh, rear window screenplay to DeRoche uh, to read, and DeRoche said, wow, you know, this, is, this would be a really great thing to do, uh, a version of rear window in a moving vehicle. What do you think? So that was the genesis of, uh, of this project. Stacy Keach, uh, you know, this, if you're a fan of, of Stacy Keach, uh, he's... He's really a one-man show for most of this film uh, until he picks up Jamie Lee Curtis as the hitchhiker. Uh, it's really just Stacy Keach and, and a dingo uh, driving around. And uh, so, so it's a great showcase for Keach. Uh, Richard Franklin had, had met Jamie Lee Curtis on the set of The Fog. Uh, I mentioned you know, he had gone to school with Carpenter, so he was visiting Carpenter on the set of The Fog and he met Jamie Lee Curtis. So uh, when, he, when he was setting up road games, he uh, said, hey, you know, why, don't we, why don't we get Jamie Lee Curtis for this part? Here's Saturday the 14th. We're hearing Gary Owens of Laugh-In fame narrating this trailer. Despite the title, this is not a spoof of slasher movies like Friday the 13th. It's more of a, a, a spoof of old-fashioned horror movies, haunted house thrillers. So, you know, here's, here's a Jaws reference that becomes a Creature from the Black Lagoon reference. Uh, this was written and directed by Howard R. Cohen, who had been a, a member of the Conception Corporation. 
comedy troupe that put out uh, a couple of really funny albums in the early 70s. Uh, the other members of the Conception Corporation were Murphy Dunn, Ira Miller, and Jeff Bagan, and, and they, they've they all worked with Cohen on various film projects, uh, many of them for Roger Corman. Uh, in fact, I think, I think Jeff Bagan... Uh, co-produced this maybe with, with Julie Foreman. I know he's involved in some way and I know uh, sometimes Murphy Dunn would show up uh, doing music or playing small roles in Cohen's movies. Uh, Murphy Dunn is probably uh, best known for filling in for Paul Schaefer in the Blues Brothers movie uh, when Schaefer couldn't get out of his Saturday Night Live contract that year. Uh, Lauren Michaels, I guess it was Lauren Michaels at that point, I'm not sure, but uh, at any rate, he couldn't get out of uh, SNL, so Murphy Dunn filled in for him for the Blues Brothers movie. There was a sequel to this, seven years later, Saturday the 14th Strikes Back, with Ray Walston. Uh, it was also uh, written and directed by Howard R. Cohen. Here we have Scanners, a trailer with uh, no narration until the end. This is really the opening scene of, uh, this, is, this is the whole opening sequence of the movie. Cronenberg, David Cronenberg wanted to open the movie with a bang. Here's Michael Ironside. It's a 1980 copyright date on this film. I mentioned earlier, uh, you'd see you'll we're seeing you know 1980 copyright dates, mostly 81, some 82s. Uh, this was a Canadian film, but you know with the Italian movies especially, like House by the Cemetery, it would be made in 81 and sometimes take a few years to reach the United States. These are all U.S. trailers. The narrator I mentioned uh, that we hear at the end of this trailer, I'm pretty sure is Ernie Anderson, who had been the voice of ABC. Uh, Ernie Anderson uh, was also the father of Paul Thomas Anderson, the director of Inherent Vice and Boogie Nights, and uh, There Will Be Blood. Ernie Anderson was also Goulardi in Cleveland. Uh, he was the horror host, horror movie television host, Goulardi. When I was a little kid, uh, I used to confuse Ernie Anderson's voice with Danny Dark's. Uh, Danny Dark was the voice of NBC. Ernie Anderson was, there's Ernie Anderson. Uh, Ernie Anderson was the voice of ABC. And I, I thought they were the same guy, you know, collecting a check from, uh, collecting checks from two different networks. I suppose we could do a side-by-side -side comparison on YouTube. We could queue up uh, a spot for Gavilan and a spot for Vegas and compare the ways that Ernie Anderson and Danny Dark say the name Robert Urich, if we were really curious. But no, I, I'm pretty sure that was Ernie Anderson we heard. Here's Paramount again. We're seeing the Paramount logo as often as we're hearing Percy Rodriguez today. This is Student Bodies, I mentioned earlier, uh, when I was talking about night school. Hello, 
Paramount wanted uh, another airplane type spoof, and since slasher movies were uh, doing so well, for them especially, uh, why not bite the hand that feeds them? Uh, this was filmed in Texas, in the towns of Richmond, Katy, and uh, the city of Houston, during a 13-week Screen Actors Guild strike. Uh, it was actually it was a nine and a half week strike that extended to 13 weeks because of negotiations. Uh, Paramount wanted to get something in production, um, you know, that that they could. They had no idea how long the strike was going to last. This was the same strike actually uh, that that happened during the Emmys uh, that year. Uh, I think 52 nominees sat out the uh, Emmy Awards. Like, no, nobody except Powers Booth, I think, showed up for that. Powers Booth was there to get his award for uh, playing Jim Jones. Otherwise, uh, nobody else from the Screen Actors Guild showed up. This was written and directed by Mickey Rose, uh, an early Woody Allen collaborator. Uh, Mickey Rose... Uh, co-wrote Take the Money and Run and Bananas, and I think he also was one of the writers on What's Up, Tiger Lily. Uh, the voice of the breather, uh, the killer in this movie that we're hearing, it was Jerry Belson. I guess because of the Screen Actors Guild strike, he took a pseudonym. He used the pseudonym Richard Brando on this. Uh, Belson was a director, mostly. He went on to direct Jekyll and Hyde together again for Paramount the next year. Uh, I find this movie very funny at times. Jekyll and Hyde Together Again, I think, is utterly laughless. Uh, not a fan of that one at all, but I, I know it, it has uh, a bit of a following. Uh, because this was shot in Texas during a, a SAG strike, uh, a lot of unknown uh, or you know, local actors were used, local actresses. Uh, Many of them, most of them, were never seen in anything again. Uh, but one, uh, I think that actor uh, turned up in a number of things. The actor that played the shop teacher, I believe he, he went on to have a pretty good career as a character actor. Michael Ritchie uh, was the credited producer on the film. He and Belson had collaborated on Smile. Uh, five or six years before this great comedy called Smile coming from Paramount what could be coming from Paramount Venom Something frightening is waiting. Toby Hooper started this movie I think he lasted a week what a cast I mean anybody directing a movie with Oliver Reed Klaus Kinski Nicole Williamson and Sterling Hayden in it. I mean, they really have their hands full. Uh, Pierce Haggard took over as director for, uh, after Hooper was released. And now we have the last, the last trailer, Wolfen. It's a short one. So I'm going to wrap up. It's been wonderful talking to you today about, uh, about the horror movies of 1981. Seems like a good time to stop now that the gardeners are moving in outside and making a hell of a racket. I'm glad they waited until now. Oh, that's Tom Noonan. I'm sure his agent was just ecstatic about this. Tom, this is great. This is great publicity. 
This is like so much cheaper than putting a, a headshot in the player's directory. I'm actually going to be showing Wolf in, uh, in a couple of weeks at the Alamo Draft House. Show up. <laughs> there is no defense. I'm Chris Bajali from Temple of Schlock. Thank you for listening.